proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the Reformed Confessions of the Faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The Confessional Collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the Kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. My name is Aaron Carr, and I'm your host, as well as the pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan. The Collective is a band of confessing pastors, planters, and churchmen, and each week we have a confessional brother come share their wisdom and experience. In today's podcast, we have Presbyterian pastor and author, Adam Barr. Adam, how you doing, man? Doing great. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Adam, would you give our listeners just maybe a two- or three-minute bio of who you are and what you've been up to? Sure. Yeah, um... I am first a, a father and a husband, I'm married to Jen, and we've got four boys, uh, ages 13 down to almost seven. I'm also a senior pastor at Peace Church, where I've been for the last five years. And so that's a, obviously a huge part of my life. Over the, over the years, I've also done a lot of work in um, worldview-type stuff. So a few years ago, I started a ministry called Borderlands, which helps people um, define their faith at the border of church and culture and uh, understand how to, how to defend the Christian faith, explain the Christian faith, and commend the Christian faith uh, in a world that's rapidly changing. i got to ask you, how did you get involved in that? What drew you to that topic specifically? Well, you know, it was, it was, it was a lot of different things. I mean, I, I grew up uh, reading C.S. Lewis from a very young age, so I was a huge fan of um, his way of doing apologetics um, from the time I was, I was young and through high school and going into college. Then my experience on the college campus uh, really convinced me just how critical it is for Christians to be able to understand their faith. I went to a historically Christian college that was uh, uh, connected to a, a mainline denomination, the Reformed Church in America. And at, at my college, I saw what happens when Christians really don't understand their faith in light of some of the critical um, ideas that are being brought against it, sometimes even by people who are in the church. And so when I went to college, I, I had to ask a lot of questions. Um, I didn't do some kind of crazy, you know, party, party yard kind of rebellion. My, my form of rebellion, or at least my form of, of testing the waters, was doctrinal, theological, philosophical. And so at, at a school that was, for lack of a better word, theologically liberal in the religion philosophy departments, I had to figure out what I really believed. And so that process of going through that and, and, and walking through that made me want to help other people who might face that thing as well. Now, Adam, there is a story that goes around that you almost got thrown out of uh, college. Is that correct? Uh, <laughs> not college, seminary. Uh, yeah, it was seminary. Even better. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 um, going into my third year of seminary, I, um, I kind of uh, publicly... Um, engaged a debate about uh, something that was going on there. One of our professors was um, was openly uh, practicing some things that were against at least what our, our confessions as a denomination were all about, and uh, having universalistic-type worship services with people of other faiths, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, and that was made very public, so I kind of had a, a public, wrote, wrote an open letter about that, and then was brought in and 
<clears throat> told to cease and desist. And also uh, had, had some discipline given to me and was given some sensitivity training. I tried to make it a nice letter, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that was those. Those were in my young days. That that was my that was my kind of fire breeze. So you've outgrown all that now. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I I think I hope I've, I certainly have become I think wiser in my approach and uh, understanding of what you can and can't affect and where you have position to or not to affect things. But um, I pray to God I've never left lost that desire for truth or that or the desire the willingness to to stand up and say something if it needs to be done. Wonderful. I got to ask the question in your development of who you are and your personality, were there certain authors that contributed to that? Any old dead guys or anything like that that you would say, hey, these guys were pivotal in my development of, of who I am today? Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, I've already mentioned C.S. Lewis as a kid. I mean, it was like very young, started reading Chronicles of Narnia, that kind of stuff, and then Mere Christianity, a lot of those other things. So those were just those were vibrant parts of my life. I, reading missionary biographies when I was, you know, 12, 13, 11, 12, 13, I can remember just going through reams of missionary biographies and learning about these men and women who laid down their lives for the gospel, and, and that had a huge impact on my life in, the, in that formative stage. And then really probably one of the biggest moments for me was in college when I, um, for the first time, uh, came across John Calvin in the form of reading through the Institutes. And so um, the, my first time through the Institutes really was a huge, huge turning point for me. And it wasn't in the sense of, um, oh boy, I used to think all these things, A, B, C, D, and now I think these other things. It was much more like the things I've thought and believed now have been articulated for me in a way that was very clear. So really the first time I read Calvin, the whole way through, it was just like, oh yeah, yeah, of course, that makes sense. It's just a lot better than I could have imagined, uh, and so that was a that was a huge piece for me was reading that. And then another guy who's not dead, but is um, I can still remember the first time I read through um, Desiring God by John Piper, and I mean having just seen him at T4G, um, just so impressed by by that brother and and the heart that he brings, his love for God's word, and I, I pray for more pastors like that too. So yeah, we definitely get warmed by the Piper fire. I mean, yeah. as I call it, it's just uh, it's electrifying when you hear him preach in person. Uh, mm -hmm. Not to mention you can hear listen to him on podcasts and such. But when you see him in person and the hands flailing in the air, and well, just the uh, man that he is too. I mean, his message is is great, but then there's some there's a deep there's a a depth to him that you um, you only see after years of faithfulness. He's not just a guy up on the stage, and you can see that. It's sad in a lot of ways because we're getting to watch a generation kind of um, go off into the sunset. You see guys like R.C. Sproul, and um, not that I'm writing John Piper off. He still has many years, we hope, of ministry, but he's already stepped down from his church, and he's in more of a, a hiatus in that respects. And uh, so it's, it's, it's sad in some ways to watch those guys go. Well, that's, that's why I felt like I wanted to bring his name up, too, because I can still remember in, 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 in seminary, early seminary, um, late college, early seminary, reading through Desiring God and just being so impacted by that. And then, of course, most people who have read Piper and loved Piper end up reading Jonathan Edwards. And I mean, just the, the depth of riches that he introduced me to. I think he was like a tour guide for that. Now, you grew up in a home where your dad was a pastor slash missionary. And so you had that DNA displayed. I know you said you love to read biographies of missionaries from a young age, um, but there it was lived out right in front of your eyes. 
Um, share a little bit about that development in, in your call for ministry. Sure, yeah. So I grew up as a pastor's kid, um, I, and over the years I've, I've met a lot of other pastor's kids, and you often see there's kind of a chip on their shoulder about the church or what their dad did. And but I got to say, I mean, for me, um, I was, by God's grace, uh, just was raised and really loved the church and saw it as, a, as an adventure of serving the Lord. Uh, when, I was, when I was born, my parents were actually in, in Canada, in Montreal, um, they had, they were originally from the south, but they were up there doing mission work. And then, shortly after I was born, my my father transitioned into full time pastoral ministry, and so was part of a church plant in New Jersey, and then planted a church in Delaware, where we stayed till I was uh, into high school. And then, while we were in, I was in my senior year, we moved out to Chicago. So I had a real um, a sense that the the calling of ministry was not just for my dad as a profession; it was for our family, and so that was a blessing um, to have. I'm sure it was challenging at times too, but there was a sense of this is real. And um, for, my, for my dad, I, I saw in him a man, um, and both my parents, but as a pastor, the man who I saw preaching was the man I lived with all the time. So that that, that was a real blessing to me. Um, my dad was a, a real student. Um, he didn't go to seminary, so he didn't get a he didn't get an MDiv. He did some seminary classes while he was a pastor, but never went to full time seminary. And we were in a non denominational, um, non confessional context, but strongly evangelical, um, passionate about the Word of God. And so it, it sounds sounds crazy, but as I said, when I when I first came to Reformed Christianity, it wasn't a shock for me. It wasn't like a speed bump. It wasn't a conversion experience. It was just a well, this is everything I've learned, but now it's it's put down in these great books, and oh my goodness, people have been saying this for 500 years. So, so that was a big. I mean, it was my. I think my dad. My, but besides not going to school, my dad was also a real reader himself. So he was, while he didn't go to seminary, he had a library just filled with books that I've now inherited uh, since they moved to Mexico and are now doing mission work again. So, I, I grew up. It was an easy transition for me to go from where, how I grew up to studying and going deeper into uh, doctrine and theology. Sometimes just being uh, uh, engaged with the theological textbook, all of a sudden we identify terms of things that we had been taught uh, because of faithful pastors who just basically taught us the Bible. Right. And it sounds like your dad was one of those guys that just being faithful to the preaching of God's Word. And... Sure. Yeah, he modeled he modeled that and then also just modeled um, what it means to be someone who's always learning. He always was reading. He always had a book. And uh, those two things, I think, were both were both critical. And my dad knows the Bible literally better than anybody I've ever met. Um, he knows it backwards and forwards. You can bring up almost anything, and he'll have a chapter and verse for you. And I got to tell you, it's <laughs> it's so refreshing to hear a PK that is excited about his dad in ministry, because yep. as you said, it's oftentimes it's not the case. And yep. uh, so it's refreshing, and <laughs> I hope my kids have the same uh, fire that you have. Me too. Let's talk a little bit about your own um, development in confessional theology. Um the idea that you didn't come from that in the roots, um, but obviously you found your way to uh, a RCA college and eventually a seminary. And so obviously I'm assuming there it's where you really picked up confessionalism. Uh, I, I wish that was the case, but that wasn't really heavily em emphasized at our school, uh, the confessional reformed faith. Um, I, I don't say that to offend or to be, uh, but but what it really means to be a confessionally uh, person who subscribes confessionally, 
um, was not emphasized in our in our seminary. And so I was exposed to it, though, and so fell in love with, like, the Heidelberg Catechism. So RCA school, RCA, uh, the Reformed Church in America, is the oldest denomination in the country, and it has three forms of unity, the, the um, Heidelberg Catechism, the, the Belgic Confession, and the um, Canons of Dort. And so that's, that's where I got exposed and really enjoyed them, appreciated them. Um, but actually, when I... And, and I worked with an R- R- RCA church, but when I graduated seminary, I still had questions about infant baptism, so I did not move into ordination in the RCA. I actually ended up working with my dad. It was an amazing time of life. For I was the the plan was I was going to graduate seminary, and the church that had been um, mentoring me, where I had been an intern for for three years, was going to take me on for a year, and then I was going to plant a church out into Grand Rapids area. But uh, my dad said, hey, <laughs> I might need some help down here. So my dad was a solo pastor of a church of about 500 with a part-time secretary, and that was his only staff. And so when dad calls, you got to say yes. So I, I kind of put off the, the full-on sign-on-the-bottom-line confessional, um, confessional um, uh, identity. But I, I loved and appreciated the confessions from that time. And then it was over the series of a few, a few years that I really um, had a— change of thinking on infant baptism, was working in a Reformed Church context, and at that point is when I was fully ordained in, in the RCA. So so i got to ask you your, your understanding of the confessions. Obviously, in uh, the RCA background, the three forms of unity, and um, in the, the working through that, what was your understanding of subscription? Well, my my understanding of subscription is that I was saying I believe this stuff, uh, <laughs> that this is what I believe, that this expresses what I think Scripture teaches on these topics, and so for me, I was um, I was I would call it a strict understanding of subscriptionism, um, for me, uh, personally. So that's why I mean, I even when I had questions, uh, the infant baptism issue being a big one, I, I knew lots of people who went in who were about where I was on the topic. Or I knew of people who went in who were about where I was on the topic in the sense of, I'm not 100% sure on this, but I really felt like if I'm going to really sign on to this, i got to really believe it. Now, the, there were um, exceptions. Um, you know, for instance, the, the RCA, uh, the uh, Heidelberg Catechism has some languages about, language about the Catholic Church that people understood to be, um, you could take exception to that sort of thing. But unfortunately, unlike the Presbyterian Church, the, the RCA doesn't have um, a, f- a process for making a, a sub- sub- uh, confessional um, exceptions. I think it's I think it's subscri- when we subscribe to the confession, if there are exceptions, we should be um, open, articulate those exceptions, and then it's up to the Presbytery in a Presbyterian system to determine whether or not those cut at the vitals of the document and the system. So I I'd say I, I'd say I, I believe in in us a strong, very robust view of subscription. These aren't just historical witnesses to what the church believed at one time. They are articulations of what you yourself hold dear. Literally standing on the shoulders of the giants who've gone before us mm-hmm. and, and building off of that. Let's talk about uh, your time in the RCA. It actually was relatively short in retrospect of, of uh, ministry years. And I just want you to kind of share a little bit of that story, if you would, um, because while you were in the RCA, you belonged to uh, a group for um, integrity, and I'll let you share a little bit about that with a name probably a lot of my listeners are familiar with, which is Kevin DeYoung, and uh, you both were in the RCA together. So pick up the story from there. Yeah, sure. When I came in um, to the RCA, 
Um, I had had a long history with the RCA. I had worked in RCA churches, but I had always done it as a guy who had been ordained outside of the RCA, originally the ministry. But um, w- once uh, my mind was, was changed on the question of baptism, then the RCA was where I was working, and the RCA was the right fit. But as soon as I came in, I also uh, was, was networking with, with some friends. Uh, Kevin DeYoung and I had been friends uh, in college and knew each other and had connections. So um, he asked me to be part of uh, a group called RCA Integrity. Uh, the name comes from um, the idea of, of integrity means moving back to who you are. And so at the heart of RCA Integrity was this idea that if the RCA took its confession seriously, um, the Lord could bring renewal to our denomination. Uh, I know just saying that would offend a lot of people who are currently in the RCA, but we really felt like that if you were to look at what are the issues plaguing the RCA, and there are many, um, that if you really cut back down, it was w- w- when we went from seeing the um, confessions as you described as our standing on the shoulders of the giants who have gone before us, that this is where we stand, this is what we believe, to these are historical faithful witnesses to the to the life of the church. So in other words, this is something people believed a long time ago, and I basically appreciate a lot of the language of it, but it doesn't in any way have a way to define limits and boundaries, or at least that power has, has been severely compromised. So integrity was all about was all about trying to raise up that value, again, in our denomination. Um, we were together. I was part of our, uh, integrity when I came on board. It had been in existence for a little while prior to my, to my being there for a few years. Well, when I came on, one of the emphases that, that I, I encouraged us to think about and worked with, with, with Kevin on was developing an annual conference to move us from being kind of a list of churches to um, a grassroots movement. And so we actually had several years um, an RCA Integrity Conference and had a number of great speakers come out, like Ligon Duncan, um, Mark Dever, um, and, uh, and Carl Truman, and some others, as well as a great scholar named Scott Manich, who's a, a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. So we, we tried to build um, a degree of camaraderie, and then we also tried to uh, prepare for um, um, things like our General Synod. And probably the one of the most important things that happened out the life of integrity took place in 2012, when we successfully helped mobilize and move um, an important... Um, uh, I'll, trying to think not everybody has the same polity language here, but basically an p- important piece of legislation through our General Senate. And uh, unfortunately, the next year it was overturned. And um, that was really a, a turning point for, for all of us, too. Now, in that whole process um, through the Integrity Group and working alongside with Kevin and trying to build, if I can say, uh, a return to the confessional standards that were once held, um, there, I'm sure there was great opposition to that. And what were what were some of the uh, tensions that were you felt as a, if I can use the term, uh, religious conservative in a what was quickly becoming a a religious liberal context? Yeah, well, the RCA is really a mixed bag. I mean, because a lot of people where we live would have would have um, been in agreement with a lot of what we have to say. The difference is um, in in the RCA, there's just a, a high value, high premium on relationship. Um, it's historically Dutch. Um, it, it's a smaller denomination, and you have people who's great, 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 all the way, you know, as far back as you can go, have been part of this denomination. And almost anybody you talk to is related to someone else across the across the country um, who's also in ministry. And so 
what we felt probably more than anything was a lot of times the relational sort of tension. People didn't engage the, theologically some of the things that we were saying. It was just more of a marginalization that could take place at different points in different times. I'd say that's one of the things that you felt the most. And then the reality is the RCA, there's another group called um, that, that's called Room for All in the Reformed Church in America that was really pushing to f- for full normalization and full inclusion of the LGBT community. And uh, they were highly mobilized, uh, highly supported by some key people in the denomination, and given platforms by a lot of the main institutional organs of the denomination, is, is, is how a lot of that worked. So essentially, what you felt is, was, was rarely ever kind of an open engagement, we're going to debate you about this. What you, what you got was virtually zero platform from an organizational standpoint. So in the life of the seminaries, um, key committees, that kind of stuff, um, there was th- that was where you felt it. You, it was very difficult to get traction outside of what we were doing with our conference and a few, a few voices. So uh, you actually started then on a journey to leave the RCA and uh, join the denomination, which I belong to, which is the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Um, share a little bit of that process, because I think for a lot of people, understanding going from one denomination to another, what's the big deal? But if if you're not familiar with denominationalism, it, it's quite a journey. Sure. Yeah, there's, um, we could talk about the process of it, and we can talk about the, the reasons for it, uh, probably. And the process is pretty uh, extensive in the Reformed Church in America, because uh, within their polity, within the Book of Church Order, it's actually um, uh, the the, the classes has the power to retain your property uh, if you were to leave the Reformed Church, if they don't allow you to transfer. So there's a process. Classes is like a presbytery. Yeah, thanks. Sorry, I forgot to. A classes would be a local collection of churches, um, and that local collection of churches ultimately has the power to vote. Now, in the Book of Church Order, our Book of Order, there's a, there's a, there's a, a three-step process. A church has to uh, determine that they're ready, that they want to, they want to leave, so they have to submit a petition. Then they have to um, be reviewed. Their petition is reviewed by a committee and then brought to classes. And then if it's determined to be advantageous for the kingdom and for that church, the church is supposed to be allowed to transfer out. And um, But there was there were certainly people in our classes who felt that, uh, that we should um, either not be allowed to leave or should be uh, forced—should uh, should be asked to pay something to the classes for, for leaving. Of course, we—, we didn't have own oh the classes money in terms of loans or anything like that. We had been in existence for fifty years, so uh, a committee recommended that we our church should pay four hundred thousand dollars to leave. Um, by God's grace, uh, we were able able to leave in in good um, in good standing, without any kind of uh, financial uh, penalty. I would have called it, um, which is a blessing. So that was a that was a major process, and we did it as a united church. I mean, the the final vote in our congregation was three hundred eight to five. Uh, in favor of stepping out and leaving the RCA, going into the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. So that was huge. What were some of the reasons you had to leave or felt you had to leave? I mean, you were part of this integrity group, yet you had to go through this process, and you knew this process was difficult. Um, It wasn't just a flipping of a switch, and yet there were reasons why you really felt you needed to leave. Yeah. Yeah, there were were reasons that that became, you know, there, there there were the always underlying issue that, Within the RCA, you have entire classes that are open and affirming. So um, you have church RCA churches um, where 
married lesbian pastors are serving uh, are what has traditionally been considered more conservative seminary, Western Theological Seminary, um, has a professor uh, of the New Testament who wrote a book called Bible, Gender, and Sexuality, which in effect um, legitimizes same-sex marriage. Um, and that's openly does that. Our former general secretary, um, who still is actively, highly actively involved in the RCA, has has said this whole question of homosexuality comes down to the relatively narrow question of whether of what two grown adults do in the privacy of their bedroom. And so we shouldn't make this a big issue in the church. Certainly not worth dividing over. So you have all those things, which obviously are discouraging um, factors. But what came down to these are now it's, these are deal breakers. There were a few things. Um, what, there were two actions taken by the denomination. One was adopting a new confession called the Belhar Confession, which we can talk about more in just a little bit. Another was, um, which we felt was was, should, was not a, a, a confession that we should adopt or could subscribe to. Another key action was the removal of what are called conscience clauses, which allowed. Um, complementarians and egalitarians to exist within the RCA. It's obviously a little bit more complex than that, but they removed those, which we felt removed protection for future pastors to be ordained um, within the denomination and open up present pastors to charges. So we felt like that was a, a fundamental change to our constitution. And then there was just the continued response to the issue of homosexuality. So those were some of the key kind of things that took place. And then underlying all of that was within the Book of Church Order, um, in the RCA, there's no way for there to be charges brought from one classes across classes lines. And that, I, I know we're getting down into the weeds of denominational politics here, but the long and short of it is, is church discipline had in effect become impossible within the Reformed Church in America. And I think that's actually a central issue because in the, in the Belgian Confession, you know, when you talk about what are the three marks of the church, right? What, how do you know when you can identify a real church? You've got pure preaching of the gospel, you got right administration of the sacraments, and you got discipline. And we had entered into a phase as a denomination where self-discipline wasn't happening, and cross-classes discipline was impossible. And so I, for, for me at least, and I know for the other guys, th those, were, those were big, big issues that we kind of were like, it's, it's no longer possible even to be a faithful fighter for reform here. It's so interesting to hear you tell this story in the 21st century you go back to the 1920s, and uh, J. Gresham Machen is yeah. dealing with this, right? right? The book for our listeners, uh, Christianity and Liberalism. Yep. He was dealing with this in the mainline Presbyterian church all the way back. Now, it wasn't on some of the issues you're talking about, but it came down to the integrity of the Bible. It came yep. down to, do we really believe what this Bible teaches? And you begin to see just in you know a nearly 100 years how far the the church has gone and it's just mind blowing to see that well and in you know it comes down to what is the what is unity you know what is unity i mean I, you know we can we can have insti there's institutional unity and that's great because that that makes it that makes mission more likely and more possible it's great to have institutional unity but we were strongly um of the opinion, and I think Scripture clearly teaches that you can't have unity with without truth, and that doesn't mean we have to agree on every single jot and tittle of Scripture. But there's a lot of great things that I, I hold dear; other people might not. But when when we we have fundamental denial of of truth in Scripture, um, 
you know, for, for the people who were, especially the people on the other side of this issue, they were saying, you know, they were charging us with factionalism that were, you know, breaking off and, and creating disunity. And, and for us, it was like, no, 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 no. Disunity doesn't happen because some choose to say we cannot associate. In fact, that's biblical. The Bible says that the truth will divide and bring a sword sometimes. The real issue is when we, we choose to call ourselves unified, and yet we're not both clinging to the Word of God. One of the things Machen brings out that really struck me was the hijacking of language. Yes. Uh, they, uh, the, the liberal mindset will be to capture our, um, our terms and redefine them. Yep. And, uh, you know, it, it makes me angry when I see this happen. And, and you can see it in individuals like Rob Bell and others today. But it was going on way back then. Yes. And you're, what you're picturing here for us uh, is just that's exactly what was happening. And well, that, and, that, and that really, that, that was exact. that is, it was the words like, you know, in fact, they're, they're, being, they're still being thrown around in the RCA. And I, I want to be real careful. I just want to say this, that I, there's a lot of wonderful people serving in the Reformed Church in America. Um, God always has his remnant. Yeah, and, and there, and there, the sad thing is, is that there are many, many good people within the Reformed Church in America, many faithful churches. The hard thing was for for us was when we've reached a point where we honestly, where we have where we've reached a parting of the ways, is not necessarily on what we both believe on a particular topic in Scripture. There were a lot of people. In fact, I would say the majority of people in the Reformed Church would have agreed with us if we'd sat down and said, "Here are some of the key issues." Where we couldn't have unity was in the decision to say, and if you don't agree with us, then fellowship doesn't work anymore. There were just, I think, too many people who were willing to tolerate not just a few pastors, but whole churches and entire classes that on issues that are of utmost gospel importance, there was total disagreement. And so I, 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 I don't know how you can have unity like that anymore. And so the unwillingness to take it, to do something about it, is what ultimately led us to say this can't, this can't work anymore. Spend a few minutes just uh, bringing everybody up to, up to understanding the Bellhart Confession. Sure, the Bellhart Confession came out of the context of South Africa. Uh, it was originally written, from my understanding, not as a document that was, was meant to rise to confessional status. Um, it's a, it's a, it, it can be a helpful document in some ways because it was it was written in that context of of South Africa, and speaking out strongly against apartheid and systems of oppression. So, in that sense, it's something we can celebrate and appreciate in its historical context. Um, the danger that we find in the Belhar Confession is, is there's a few different things. One is uh, is is the uh, there's a vagueness of language that. Um, opens the door to all kinds of things, which I'll get back to in just a second. A second issue with the Belhar Confession uh, is that it really, it really, unlike our other confessions, which got to the heart of the gospel, which I think is critical, this was, this was dealing with what we would, I would call a second-tier topic that springs from the truth of the gospel. You know, from the truth of the gospel, the truth of reconciliation, we have a strong stance against things like racism. But um, the sin of racism doesn't fall into the heart of what is the what is the definition of the gospel. So while it's central, it's important, it's critical to talk about those issues, uh, those, those would, would be addressed more in a statement of belief or in, in a, another context, not, not primarily for, for us in, in terms of a confession. So those were two things. And then finally, one of the authors of the, of the Belhar Confession uh, later on came out and said that the Belhar Confession absolutely entails full inclusion of LGBT individuals. And so we felt like that's why it was being adopted. And in fact, it was being adopted in the RCA by many uh, who were advocating for that. 
Um, it also has what I think is a deficient view of church unity. So there's a number of those different things. And then also, uh, uh, one last piece of that, uh, the language issue, is that it imports a lot of the language of, um, of social gospel and liberation theology uh, gets imported into it. Which, again, there are things you can learn from that, but there's, there's certain sort of um, unhelpful binaries like the rich versus the poor and um, things that lead you into more of a kind of a language that smacks more of socialism than, than gospel. Um, again, much you could appreciate about the document, but the lack of biblical clarity, the fact that it is addressing what I would say wasn't a, a central gospel uh, um, definition, and then what it's open to being used for, and is being used for in our denomination were all reasons why we felt like the Belhar is a document we can appreciate, but it's certainly not something I can subscribe to. Now, you also are the author of a book called Compassion Without Compromise, and the underline here says, how the gospel frees us to love our gay friends without losing the truth. (laughs) And I just want you to share a little bit about why you wrote this. Was this in reaction to everything you had just went through, or was this something that was kind of seeping under the current for a while in you that you felt like you were, you just needed to pen? Sure. Well, it I mean, in some ways it goes back to, it's in some ways it goes back to when I was a student um, in college. Uh, as I said, I, I went to this college where you had these, you know, already then this issue was being talked about. And I can actually, I can actually remember uh, being in a class uh, just after my sophomore year during a summer class and called Christian Love. And the professor was clearly kind of on the other side of this issue and was asking a whole lot of questions. And I can remember us having this this moment where we were supposed to sit down and role play like we were in a church. And we just found out that uh, the son of one of the sons of this church, the son of one of the elders is, is gay. And how's the church going to respond to it? And I can I can remember being in this room. And it was this highly popular class. So there were like forty five students broken up into groups, and all these college kids are sitting around talking. And the volume of the room became overwhelming. People were screaming in each other's faces. It was like I, I remember seeing that, and I I I remember right then saying this is going to be something that has a huge impact on the church. And so for me, I. I love the church. I love the bride of Jesus Christ. I said that at the beginning, you know, I grew up knowing the church was for real, and I thought something this important, it's not going to stay in, on the college campus. It's not going to stay in seminary classrooms. It's going to come right down to the local level, and it's going to have a huge impact on us. So from that time, I actually really wanted to study Scripture, understand it. I wanted to understand how is the gospel good news for people who are struggling with same-sex attraction, I wanted to understand how can Christian leaders stand strong in this issue and preach it, but not do it in a way that alienates or that prevents people um, from thinking, you know, I can I can still love my friend, I can still love my neighbor, and in fact, one of the most loving things I can do is share the gospel with them. Those, are, those were all very real for me from the time I was in college through seminary. I had chances to teach some classes on it, do different things. I was encouraged to write about this so long before... I had any plans for in the RCA or what was going on. This was something that the Lord, a message the Lord had been really birthing in me over over the course of more than more than a decade, really. And so, uh, that's that's kind of how I came around to to, to wanting to write the book. Um, the, the, the timing of it was also looking around and seeing there are a lot of good books out there. Um, some of them are really top shelf, as in 
um, you got to basically have an MDiv or you got to be in an MDiv program or you got to be a really committed reader to even make your way through this enormous book. Then there were some that gave testimonials. I really wanted to write one that wasn't um, just engaging the culture war issue, but was a, a very practical handbook that a pastor could really just give to someone in their congregation who's asking questions about this and do it. So I felt like we were filling a niche. My co-author, Ron Sitlau, and I were filling a niche that really took, a, took this topic and made it digestible for real-world people. In fact, as I was writing it, a, a good friend of mine um, who, was an, um, who I meet with on a weekly basis, um, as I was writing this book, his son came out of the closet. And so we were talking about this issue um, right then. So to be honest with you, I wrote this book for him. <laughs> but I, I have a feeling a lot of us have people just like that in our lives, and that's that's what we were shooting for. Kind of walk us through, I, I don't want you to do a, a, a line by line or even a chapter by chapter, but give us the major section of this book that you would say are things that you felt really compelled that needed to be dealed with, dealt with in the church. Sure. The f- one of the things that we felt like had to happen was that Christians needed to be given, um, equipped with an answer to the revisionist interpretation that's being ta- that's taking place, um, because the issue isn't just what's happening in culture; it's what's happening in churches right now. There are many churches that are moving into a um, LGBT affirming position, and that's only going to increase. The arguments that they use for that from the scriptures are actually pretty basic, and they've been around for a lot of years. And in fact, uh, it just takes a little bit of thinking to see that they don't match up with what scripture says, but. The first time you hear them, they can be a little bit intimidating. So what we try to do was say, here's what Scripture really teaches, and here's where these arguments fall flat, these, these arguments from revisionists. That's one big piece. Another piece of the book is how do we really uh, practically love people? So we actually have two different chapters um, in the church and in the world. So we have two different chapters that are, are gleaned from questions that we received from a lot of different people. I asked a lot of different people just to ask questions. So we have two chapters, seven and nine, that are looking at real-world people's questions. And then we, then we ask the question, how does the gospel become the orienting lens through which we approach this topic and this issue? And um, how can we as a Christian church be a more effective witness on this topic? Why do you think the church has lost so much traction here? Well, part of the reason we've lost traction is because we've chosen to engage this as a political issue only for a long time. I'm not against us being engaged in the political process. Part of living in a constitutional republic like ours means that civic responsibility entails engagement. But that's not enough. It's not sufficient. So we've either ignored, we've completely ignored it, pretended it wasn't there for a long time. Um, or we've engaged it simply at a political level, and I think also um, part of what it, part of what we've we've done as a church is we've we've retreated from this topic and allowed people in the counseling profession or a few specialized ministries to take care of this. And I think part of the reason we do that is because we as a church kind of don't know how to handle sin in general. <laughs> And I think that's this issue is showing us that, that we, we haven't built communities of faith that are places where Christians are genuinely dealing with an overcoming sin, not just on the level of behavior, but down at the level of desire. And i got to ask this question. I mean, this is the confessional collective. What do old, dusty confessions have to deal with, and, and how do they deal with 
the culture today on on these type of topics. I mean, obviously, there's there's sections on on the importance of scripture. There's important. There's in sections on on um, on creation itself. But how do you piecemeal all that together? I mean, if we say these confessions matter, how does it come into play on topics that are on our news as we're as we're sitting watching the five o'clock news? Well, read the. I, all I can say is, if you haven't ever read the Heidelberg Catechism, you should read the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, the Heidelberg Catechism uh, asks. It starts by asking you, "What's your only comfort in life and death?" And I'm not my own. I belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. And it goes on to talk about the the cost of His own blood being shed. I mean, it's it's the most um, powerfully comforting message I think any of the confessions have the warmest one confessional and, and and I tell you what if you're genuinely dealing with sin you need to know what is the standard of your acceptance into the kingdom of God and you got to know the price that was paid it was the, the price of his own precious blood um, the confessions also speak about things like sanctification what does sanctification look like um, and I love how the, the the Heidelberg talks about mortification of the flesh, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, and vivification, the coming alive in Christ. Um, I think those are powerful things. I think it's also incredibly relevant. I already actually mentioned it earlier. The um, the confessions help you define what is unity, what does true church unity look like, and um, and what are the marks of a true church, a genuine church. S- to the point that we can we can actually one of the great things the confessions allow us to do is is to put paid to this myth that somehow. Uh, the question of homosexuality is just some off-in-the-corner ethical issue that we can be free to disagree on. No, it's, it's really not. Um, if something is indeed sin, if it's sinful, then to ignore it and not deal with it is to fail to live up to what it means to be the church. Again, the Bel- 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 Belgian Confession talks about um, discipline being the third mark of the, of the church, us walking together in that. So I mean, there's just so many different places besides just the things that we believe, the way that we're called to relate to one another as truth speakers. I think by being a confessional person, a confessional Christian, I think you're given tools for this. And you, you, you can ask a question, what's the basis of our unity? Is it just that we like each other? Is it just that we were financially enmeshed <laughs> in a denominational structure? Or is it that we're people who are genuinely committed to the truth together? No, I know you're not a prophet, nor are you the son of a prophet. <laughs> but if you were to kind of look out over the horizon and you see the direction things are heading, what would you be, um, if you could speak in in a room full of young church planters, what would you want to share with them as far as the importance as they go forward in, in this, this quickly changing culture? At the heart is be a man of the word. You need to be a man of the word. It's not enough to be a man of issues. Um, it's not even enough to call yourself a gospel man. You need to be a man of the word who knows the Bible inside and out, who feeds on the Bible regularly, who who loves the word, and understands that all you have to give that's worth giving comes from that, from that book. The only seed that you can plant that's going to produce life is from that book. And unless you're sowing it into your life, then you're not going to bear fruit yourself. So I, that sounds so fundamental, it's so basic, but it is, it's at the heart of it all. Um, even before you call yourself confessional, call yourself biblical. And I don't think there's a false dichotomy there, but I would, I would say, in love the confessions, embrace confessions, 
But let the language of your life be biblical. Point your people to Scripture. That'd be critical. And then I would say, it's going to take different forms. Some of it's going to look more like a network. Some of it's going to be more formal, like what you and I share, Aaron, in terms of uh, accountability in the EPC. We need networks of Christians who are bound together and mutually accountable to clear statements of what Scripture teaches on important topics and issues. So don't be a lone ranger. Look for that kind of a network. Look for that kind of accountability. Welcome it and embrace it in your life. And don't treat doctrine as something somehow incidental to mission. Uh, The two cannot be divided, and in fact, one feeds the other. So I would say those are those are some of those. I mean, the, the most basic key things you got to really love the Bible, and you got to really look for genuine accountability if you're going to be going forward and be part of a of a group that embraces that. Um, if you take a look around and s- some of the really grieving recent in the last few years um, loss of some key leaders, you know, some of them for moral reasons, some of them for um, not not gross immorality, but just leadership habits that weren't healthy. Some of that stuff can only be overcome if you're in relationships of mutual accountability. So I would suggest that those are critical things. Um, And then the the final thing I would say is you cannot be a wimp. We are not going to, our culture is not going to say, oh, okay, now I understand what you're saying. Now, now I understand what you mean about that. And now that you've said it, and now, now that I understand it, that's great. Here's your place at the table. That's not going to happen on for, for Bible-preaching churches anytime soon. In fact, I think we're going to be more and more, uh, in, at least in, in terms of cultural institutions, we're going to be more and more disenfranchised at certain levels. And we want to handle that with grace as people who understand that this is not our home, that we are a church in exile. So we better prepare for that. And we better, we better be building communities that in the midst of that will we'll demonstrate visibly that while you might say we're on the outs, America, intelligentsia, whatever, fill in the blank, you, you might say that we don't fit the mainstream, but when it comes to the wasteland of the world, they're going to see beacons. They're going to see lighthouses because we're actually living into the things that we're talking about. I think those are all things we need to be ready for um, if you're going out into church ministry. You can't, we're not going to be able to get enough cool clothes or stage design or anything like that to make to finally make the message palatable. Our message is increasingly going to be unpalatable. We're going to have to, need to have the message to proclaim it. We're going to have to have the integrity of knowing it. And then we're going to have to actually help people live it in our, in our local congregations so that there's an incarnational apologetic. In other words, the, the truth of what we're saying is taken on flesh and blood in our families and in our churches. Adam, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a refreshing topic, not because of everything you experienced and have gone through, but the fact that you are a man who was willing to stand in the gap. And I think in our culture, we have to have more men raised up to do that very thing. So what we're trying to do here in the collective is get the importance of truth and mission combined and people to see that we don't have to choose one or the other. Amen. We can be doing both together. And we hope that you'll catch us next week as we'll continue moving forward. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Confessional Collective Podcast. For more information and resources, please visit confessionalcollective.com. And be sure to like our Facebook page.